welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content. My name is Alex. I was a writer for what's called a content mill for more than eight years. In that time, I got to write tons of articles every single day. I got a really good insight into how basically any article you find on Google, the top 10 tips for cleaning out your gutter or the hottest trends in music recording, all of that is generated in a factory and the name of that factory is Content Mill. And everybody who works there is very lowly paid and they have just an absolutely crazy high level of expectations for how much work they're going to produce. And so the, the consequence of that is that, as I alluded to in the title, the conversation is extremely low. And we're not talking about Sarah Jessica Parker's character in Sex and the City, who is getting, I want to say, four or five dollars a word. So imagine the opposite of that. But anyway, this podcast, is, its main focus is on the ins and outs of what it's like to work at a content mill. But more broadly, it's about sort of the idea of content as a whole. What does it mean you to call everything that is produced by anybody content written or spoken or drawn or painted? It's all somehow content. One of the aims of this podcast is to trace how content as a word entered the public consciousness and what effects has its ubiquitous use had on what we consume, what options do we even have to consume? Are we actually choosing to consume content or is content sort of being forced upon us? So when these people in the content mill are just churning out article after article or video after video every single day, what kind of effects does that have on what actually gets seen? Does that so much other stuff would just get lost in that sea of just, I don't know, garbage might be a strong word. A lot of this. It's the yeah, word I would use. It's yeah. the word I would so use. So when you're yeah. writing content, you, you are very much following a formula. You're trying to meet something called search engine optimization. So you're trying to rank for certain keywords. You're trying to, you know, have your article formatted and laid out in such a way that Google, and I'm violating one of my main rules here by giving Google like an inanimate object agency, but like what Google thinks it wants. So. Right. Anyway, so that's the overview, and we we have a lot of different avenues planned for what we're going to explore. Technology is definitely a big part of this because not only Google's centrality to SEO, but also the origin of the word content, which we'll get into in this first episode, is very much something that's intertwined with the origins of the tech industry as we know it, like in the modern day of Silicon Valley and the West Coast, like Bill Gates, as we'll soon get into, is one of the originators of maybe the most famous saying in the entire content industry. But I'm just going to, I am going to pop in here and say, get ready for that. Because when we had this conversation, just for the listener, some inside baseball, we did record this first episode a couple of weeks ago, and now we're recording intros to put in front of it. That week that we recorded, Alex and I had a pretty deep conversation about Bill Gates and how he dictated the content industry in 1996. I've just created it. This was his blueprint for something that can make money, the content. And then Microsoft ruined the rest of my week. <laughs> so it was a very Bill Gates week yeah, for me. Yeah. I am Elizabeth. I am Alex's co-host. I am a recovering content writer. We met at the same content mill. I now masquerade as a digital content specialist, which doesn't really mean much other than I do different kinds of content now. And also I am special or something, I think. So yeah, we, uh, we basically just wanted to come in here at the top and say welcome and thank you for listening to our podcast. Even if it's just for the two of us, because we're the only ones obsessed with content, we've been having these on and off conversations for years just about 
how ubiquitous, I think is the right word, the term content has become. So for this first episode, we take a deep dive into what is content and more specifically why is content. And I hope that you all enjoy it. Enjoy the episode and check back every couple of weeks. Yes, we are going to, we are going to rock your socks with content. We're we're content powerhouse flooding the zone with content. Absolutely. (laughs) Problem that we've identified. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which I imagine we will talk about eventually as well. used to be a content writer for almost a decade, which is a very long time to work in the content industry. It's a feat. Yeah. I had someone once say almost exactly what you said, no small feat is what they described it as. When we talk about the content space, we mean something very specific. Some people call them content mills. Some people call them content farms. You might hear them referred to also as agencies or marketing agencies, content marketing agencies. There's a whole string of keywords or terms that you could refer to these companies by, but basically their business model is to create written content and to a lesser extent, like graphic content, some videos, sometimes even like podcasts like this one and distribute it through the internet and with a heavy focus on search engine optimization. So They want this content to be super visible in Google, ideally on page one. There's also an email element to some of it, like content, like an email newsletter that you might get from a company or similar to even something from Substack or something that goes out on a regular basis. You want to get a regular readership. You want people to be clicking links that are wanting them to be taking action from that email. So content, the content industry or a content mill could do many different activities like that. So it could be a blog post. It could be an email newsletter. It could be... A video could be anything of that type. Social media kinds. Social media. Yeah, exactly. It's another big part of that. So my own experience in this space is almost entirely in the writing side. The writing volume that is involved with this is incredible. It's hard to describe to somebody who hasn't worked in the industry, just the exact scope of that. But before I go into that, I think it's when we say content, I think this is a word that like a lot of people just gloss over and they just think, oh, content, that's a thing. Content, they talk about visual content, written content, or they might say, and so it's a content provider. You see this in the media a lot too. Like you see, I believe that the AOL, not the AOL, the other Time Warner version, AT&T Time Warner, it's described as creating a content powerhouse. And uh, so you also get these companies, they see their, their output, the product that they're creating. They're calling it content. So even like Netflix, if you look at their job boards, they have things, they have jobs like a content acquisition lead. Or if you look at other companies like Xbox, which is of course part of Microsoft, they'll talk about how Game Pass, their subscription to video game service has all of this great content. Or if you look at Spotify, his music streaming service, they also see themselves as providing content. So it's this word, it's constant across all of these different industries. You know, Netflix makes videos and Spotify makes music. And then AT&T is an internet provider and the Time Warner, who they acquired in sort of an ill-fated deal in the mid-2010s, owns a huge conglomerate of TV networks like TNT, TBS, and then Somehow all of that is referred to by the same word, content. Which makes it feel like a nothing word. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I think when you say, what is content, you can really, you can can get super literal with it. You can get the the cliched college sophomore thing. Webster's Dictionary says (laughs) that content is 
So in this case, the literal definition of content has, it has some value. If you look at the etymology of the word, it does have some history as being a, like a container or something that, you know, that holds something like actually to live out the cliche that I just talked about. Apple's own dictionary lists online content providers as one of the main usages of this term. The association of the word content with a marketing agency or with like a streaming company, anything like that is, is very ingrained. So I like the way, so I, I like thinking about it as filler, right? Literally yeah. as filler. You're talking about the etymology of the word content. It comes from the word to contain. Yeah. And it's basically just stuff you put in a box. And what is that yeah, box? I, that box is these online content. Here I go. Here, these online content platforms, right? Yeah, it's exactly. It, it's almost gotten to the point where you, it's hard to talk about this without using the word. And right. Get past it. What is below the facade of the content keyword? I think the idea of it is filler is pretty good for two reasons. So the first one is what you just said about it. Like it's being stuffed into something else. So I was following... A Twitter thread where Tressie McMillan Cottom, she's an academic and she's also, she writes for the New York Times. She had a video where she said something like, I'm quoting here, arguably in an internet-based world, the two most powerful creative forces are the visual artist and the writer. That's literally what the internet is built on, images and words. Mm -hmm. And then later on, she says, I don't make content, I write. And then from that, there was some other discussion and someone replied with the ubiquity of content generation is detrimental to all involved. Some of us write, some edit, some direct, some do camera work. Some of us contribute ideas or act as audiences. And then he concludes with, there's a lot that goes into even the smallest package of quote unquote content. And then there's a deleted tweet that I had luckily had captured, or I think that the author might've actually gone behind it. He might've blocked his tweets, but he says the whole concept of content is or oriented around the owners of the container. <laughs> so I think that really captures something about it because, so like when you say you're a content creator, what's implied in that phrase is that content is going somewhere on the internet, essentially. And it's being and the consumed thing is, by someone. And it's being consumed by someone, yeah. So it's, there's a lot, it's a simple phrase. Someone will say, I'm a content creator. So what are you creating content for? It could be something like you're making a YouTube video, you're making something for TikTok or in this context you know, that we discussed earlier with a content mill or a content agency, and you're creating content for company websites. So like creating something for the company's blog or a company's email newsletter. So in these cases, you're creating the work, sometimes the images, but then you don't own anything involved with the distribution of that content or how it's being seen, who, who's accessing it. The idea of the container is really implied there. So with this idea of content as filler, I'd found this other post from, on Medium where someone has said, creating content means filling gap. There's almost a sense of you're obligated to publish it. The quality of it doesn't even come into consideration. It just has to get out there. And yeah. uh, Jeff Jarvis, who of course we made fun of many times, but who's the subject of the Prof. Jeff Jarvis parody. You know, we do a whole episode about Prof. Jeff Jarvis. Or Jeff <laughs> yeah, Jarvis I know. In general. It's so true. Yeah, I know. 
He had talked about like how, I think in a tweet, he had said the iPod when it was retired recently, they said it had inaugurated the era of too much content. And so I thought about that too, because when I was in college, someone said, oh, the more music you have on your iPod, the less of it you'll listen to. And then I'd look at my library, my Apple music. What was the last time I listened to half the tracks? Any of this. Yeah. And then you think of music as content. Musical artists have to churn out all of this content as well. They have to record and tour all the time now because the royalties they get from Spotify or even Apple Music or YouTube are just minuscule. Like they're literally fractions of a penny per stream. So you stream a song on Spotify at one time, but the artist gets literally a fractional penny. They have to keep creating more of this music to fill up the Spotify, Spotify's container, if we're going back to the metaphor of content is filler, just to get more of it in there. The Onion had something like, uh, you know, Spotify commemorates $100 paid to musicians or something after, I can't remember how many, Spotify was founded in like 2008. So it was like, yeah. uh, the joke was like after a decade, they had paid you. Finally. At a hundred dollars. A grand total of a hundred dollars. I have a couple examples to relate to that. So one of my new favorite TikTok accounts, which we could do a whole thing about TikTok, but yeah. that's another story, is that uh, they're a post-punk emo band, right? Yeah. And they have done like so many TikTok videos that have millions and millions of views. But then, of course, their bonafide stream is not anything. So you're making yeah. content on a platform and then you make more content on a different platform so that the people on that platform will look at your content on the first platform, but actually it doesn't super translate. Yeah. And yeah. even like the, if we want to go super old school, the publishing industry, just yeah. the written word. There are people that I know who have TikTok accounts who keep trying to go viral and one of them did go viral and it resulted in 500 copies of his book sold oh wow which was like nothing nothing yeah it's like in the content game the number of people who ever break through is, is so small so we think about even even in the content mill industry where you're just to give an idea of what your day might look like and you could write up to in the old days like eight to ten articles a day maybe in the more recent day four to five articles a day and many of those are just going to go directly into the digital trash can to use it yeah what doesn't really make any sense the hope is that maybe one of them through maybe it'll be viral who will who is going to benefit from this construction of like you're you're creating content for a platform and then you're filling up this platform and who is benefiting from that who is benefiting from calling this content who is creating this entire idea that everything is every writer, artist, singer, you name it, is a content creator. I think it really benefits the platform owner. It doesn't really benefit the person who's creating content. And I think the other thing is, this is another angle on content is that it's not, you can say it's filler. And I think it is that you could also say that content is advertising in a way. It's advertising for the platform that it's going on. So goal is almost not even for the person to consume the content in question, so the blog post that you wrote or the track that you recorded, really the purpose from the platform owner's perspective is to get more people to use the platform. So it's, it's like your content is just, this is on here. If you listen to this, you read this, you see this, maybe you'll consume more that's on the platform. So it's, it's the individual works have less value. It's more what is on platform as a whole and each individual piece doesn't really stand out. And you do have a few that will, like you said, go viral, but yeah. the chances of that happening are so small. I come up with this idea of there's two narratives around content. So 
the content does two things simultaneously. So the first one is like, it's passive thing where you're being acted upon. And so I pulled this from, um, HubSpot, who is sort of a, I don't know if a content hall of fame or a, a content pantheon. HubSpot is definitely in yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say HubSpot is really a content mill in the literal sense. They're more like a, they do produce an enormous amount of work it's related to how to optimize your copy, how to optimize your website. I'm going to call them they, <laughs> <laughs> they really are. They're not a content farm or a mill, but they enable the content farms and mills of the world. Because really, if you write for any of these mills or content farms where you're churning out lots of articles every day, HubSpot is often going to be on the page one of Google. There'll be something like how to use, how to give your site a great audit or how to build your newsletter audience. So really in the content world, HubSpot is pretty inescapable. But anyway, I, I pulled this from HubSpot, but they said, quote, content keeps us informed informed, answers our questions, entertains us, makes us smile, guides our decisions and more. So it seems a little crazy. It's a very optimistic outlook on content because, you know, in, in terms of keeping people informed, I don't know, most people have probably gone to Google recently and it's, you type, what is, what is the gray owl or something? And then half the articles on the front page would be something like, what is the gray owl? The gray owl is great. The best gray owl are the gray owls that live in these two states. And then here's how to use a gray owl. <laughs> and, or then even something more extreme, the best gray owls for your small business. Yep. So it's, it, it's shocking how every page almost has the same format, even though the topics can be so different. What I was also drawn to in this definition was a content agent. So the people who are consuming the content are just passive. The content is just flowing over them, but they can't do anything about it. They're, they need information, they need questions answered. The content is just there in this all pervasive way. And then I think actually the, uh, there was like a hearing, I think it was, gosh, it was like more than 20 years ago, but I think it was when AOL and Time Warner merged. And I think it was something like someone had a similar term for it, something like, yeah. So it was like the Senator Conrad Burns from Montana. He said that there was a vast array of video, music, and print content that pervades America's everyday life. That's this was like in the context of talking about AOL. That so, was forever ago. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. So he was talking about it being pervasive, but it, so the, there is this notion that content is this thing that's all encompassing. It means everything. It's everywhere. You can't really get away from it. It does everything for you and so on. And then Spot, I keep almost calling HubSpot Spotify. Maybe that's part of the problem here. <laughs> Yeah. But and then another frame you often get with content, in addition to it being this pervasive thing, is that it also, it, that there's this enormous sort of like physical hunger appetite for content. I found this substack that said, given the large appetite for this kind of content, he was referring to a Netflix series on like Formula One. Again, you have the framing. Everything that goes on Netflix is often framed as Netflix original content. Mm -hmm. So there's this frame, as, there's this appetite for it. People are really starving to have all this content. At the same time, whether or not the appetite is like organically coming from a person or if it's just this illusion of choice, like you on Netflix and there's hundreds and hundreds of shows, but then the, which ones are you actually going to watch? Maybe the ones that are at the very top that are in the spotlight or recommended for you. You're not really choosing which content you're consuming, it's really in a way it's being served to you. So that does fit with the idea that content is something that is like the agent, the active thing that is acting on us. It happens to people, right? Yeah. 
actively seek out content unless yeah. they're us. <laughs> so just like take a step back and yes, like when was the last time you consumed content? I think they would find that first. <laughs> they think it's that's so funny, but like we say that kind of stuff to each other all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the context of content mill or content farm, they'll always they'll tell their clients the content is will be delivered on such and such date. Or you will update the content with this and so on. But the other frame that you often get with content is almost the exact opposite of what we just described. So the other frame really centers on the term content creator. So in this frame, content is something that you have control of. So in, 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 in contrast to content just being something that controls you, you can create this content and Perhaps this content can make you rich and famous. Probably it won't. But, but uh, that's the illusion. That's the illusion. Yeah, there's always the, yeah, it's like that uh, Mark Twain quote about Americans see themselves as uh, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. So it's, it's, you're just one lucky break away from cashing in and you're, you're going to write the 10, 10 best moments from Stranger Things season four, rocket you to riches. So it's, it's part of it in that way, it's sort of part of what I would call it the hustle narrative, like some people talk about hustle culture or another term that often is tossed around is rise and grind, which is, it was, uh, that's, how, that's it, what I have to rising, say about that. Rise and grind is one of those things that I've often wondered if it was a natively ironic phrase or if it was like at some point it was earnest and then it just, it was so overused. I always assumed okay. that it meant like, gotta go grind your coffee. That's another thing to it. it. It's not even that great from an SEO perspective because when you search for it, you get a lot of stuff about coffee. I don't know what the origin, whether it's like, like just to make, to take it in the metaphorical sense, rise and grind is you gotta get up early. You have to just go all out. You have to work all these long hours. And that really does square with the ideology, both of the content mill world and really of the technology world, which I think these two concepts of content and of technology, they're very closely related. In fact, I don't even know if we could have the, the sort of the keyword content being as dominant as it is. We didn't have Silicon Valley, yep. the technology industry as we know it. And to hammer more in on that, I would say there's two really big moments, the history of content as a word that pervades everything. The first one is in 1996, Bill Gates wrote an essay in which uh, there's a famous line in it now that is basically, and you can't escape it. The line is content is king. No, oh, so, I can't tell you uh, how many times I've heard that. Same. I, I've heard it. I don't even know how many times, but I didn't realize until recently that it was something that Bill Gates of all people had come up with. But then when you think about it more, it makes a lot of sense that he was so pivotal in creating this idea that content is the end all and be all of the internet. And yeah, it's really worth going back to the original sentence that it appears in. And he says, content is where I expect much of the real money made on the internet, just as it wasn't broadcasting. So the, the idea. So we are rising and grinding back to the Bill Gates. Yeah. yeah. And then he, uh, it's, uh, so he, even he, to his credit in this essay, he realizes that content is broad term because he says, quote, when it comes to an interactive network, such as the internet, the definition of content and contents in quotes becomes very wide. For example, computer software is a form of content, an extremely important one. <laughs> I left that aside. Great. Thanks. And the, one, <laughs> yeah, and the one that for Microsoft will remain by far the most important, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then he goes, I says, no company is too small to participate. And he talks about supplying information and entertainment. So then that's a little more specific. And then, it, but then you get this rise and grind thing again, that anyone with a PC and a modem can publish whatever content they can create. Here, did you say this once? 
This is from 1996. Oh my goodness. So, uh, All right. It, it is ahead of its time. His reference point here is, is broadcasting. I went through some old TV guides on archive.org, some old scans, and you really won't find the word content in those anywhere. You'll see programs, shows, but you won't hear somebody saying something like, oh, CBS has a great content line this fall. Whenever somebody says something about content, I just, I, my brain is just like, Meh. all right, <laughs> that is it. The word is used with such ubiquity, right? It just covers mm-hmm. it. You do. It's funny because my job title right now is digital content specialist. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's amazing how job titles or departments or any sort of function related to content can be spread across companies and organizations that do such things. Yeah. So like from when I was working on a content farm and your title is something like content writer, or sometimes you might get a title in another side of the same business as your content Management, content manager, content specialist, something like that. But then you can pivot to a software company and you can be on the content team at a software company. And your day-to-day work would be quite a bit different in a way because you wouldn't be like in the content farm mode. You're just charting on it. But at the same time, what you are producing is still referred to by the same term. So something is uniting all of these divergent functions under the same umbrella of content. And for a long time, I, I wondered what was the link between how can somebody writing the top 10 trends in VoIP for 2014. Here you writing that article right now. <laughs> I, re- I then, remember reading it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then that, or here's the release notes for blah, blah, blah version of blah, blah, blah. And that's also content. Somehow that fits into it as well. Yeah. So I think it would be useful to maybe take a step back. We, we defined content, we defined content bill, right? Like the, maybe how know each other, why we are so intent <laughs> on this content part of the business, right? Because we did meet at a content mill and I remember being very rosy eyed thinking, oh, I became a writer at the exact right moment in history. Because there will always be work because everyone always needs content. And of course, now I'm bold and jaded. Ah, yeah. oh, it's so bleak. But that's, that's where we met as we were producing. I'm going to call it at least a 12 page paper every day for a content. I think, bill. I think Hamlet by William Shakespeare is 29,000 words. Oh my God. A content mill, you get this list of keywords and then you get some context on the client you're writing. So like, who is the company? What do they do? Who are their competitors? What are they aiming to do with this? And then after that, you're on your own to just churn out as much writing and like writing as content. And, it really and- is content. It could be useful and fulfilling, I'll say. But I can remember maybe one fulfilling article that I wrote my entire time as the content note, which granted was not 10 years. So you yeah. probably have a little bit more experience I mean, than I am. The sheer volume, it's hard, not just for the people writing it, but it's even for the people receiving it because they can't keep up. Yeah. There's at least one more articles hitting their inbox every day. To set some context here, the year is 2008 to 2011 or 12 or somewhere around there. Ideal play for small business if you wanted to, to visit your site, which is publish blogs almost every single As day. much content as and, possible. And the roots of that goes back to the original blogging culture, which, you know, from the days of heyday, like Blogspot, and even, I think we might even call them in retrospect, microbloggers. 
But uh, people who would do blog posts of 200 words or less five times a day, a lot of the people who were in the demographic who would do microblogging abandoned that for Twitter. Mm -hmm. There still are people who do it, but it's a very niche occupation now. Then the content mill itself to industrialize its process. I remember writing news articles about centers and they had to be 200 words and it had to be breaking news about a data center. Can you yeah. imagine the most yeah, it, garbage? At some point, you almost run out of stuff. You have to. It's hard to think that would even be possible considering how much stuff is out there. But when you're working for a content mill and you're looking to hit these very specific keywords, you're looking to often weave them into sentences and they can be somewhat awkward because the keywords themselves might be like benefits of data centers. Use that three times somehow and it doesn't come off as being natural. And, but anyway, you're just really trying to jam the airwaves with this type of material and have Google pick up on it. But then that moved into a different sort of content, right? So the content world, you know, has changed. And part of it is because the word content became prestige word because of content base that you're adjacent to technology. Yeah. So you're trying to get either, you're like a literal sense, you are trying to gain. You're trying to create something that will go through Google's algorithm and it will show up that page. At the same time, the idea of this container, a lot of these containers are inevitably owned by tech companies. Many of these companies are very large conglomerates or monopolies in their space. Facebook, Facebook has a role that they call a content moderator. And basically every single thing that goes on Facebook is content. And then HubSpot has also said the news stories, Instagram feeds, blog posts, cat videos, GIFs, memes. That's what they've also content. So there's this vast range of things that call content. And the content mill doesn't necessarily dabble in all. But the way in which it does turn them out, it gets back to that logic from that Bill Gates essay. And in his essay, he says, the internet allows material to be duplicated at low cost, no matter the size of the audience. So bloggers who covered Apple or mm. big tech issues often talk about how there's zero marginal distribution costs. So the idea is that on the internet, you can send something out to thousands of people or millions. It costs very little and you can reproduce it because it's digital. You don't have to manufacture physical new copies of it like you would with like CD. He says distributor worldwide, basically zero marginal costs. About what you're... So this idea that the duplication is so easy, you see that logic filter down into the labor of the content mill because we can distribute this so easily to anyone. So why don't we just produce as much of it as possible? It's a snake eating its own tail, right? Because now yeah. you're just contributing to the glut in 1996 when Bill Gates originally said that. But clearly the internet wasn't as big as it is. Seven years ago or so, I blogged about the internet in the early days. I was conceived of as like a space. So you can still see that in terms like cyberspace or like I think you go online, I'm blanking at the name, but I think Apple or someone has something kind of service where you would log in and there was a metaphor, like there was little buildings you would go between. Here's your email. And this, yeah, browser in this building. And then, and then even this computer game, Space Quest 6, this final frontier, the main character, whose name is Roger Woko, he puts on a headset. And it takes him to what it's called literally the information superhighway. Yeah. And so literally it is like just a series of roads. And then at the end of this road is this big building with all these filing cabinets. And over time, of course, the idea of the internet was like a space receded and the internet became something more like a medium, something that you went through instead of somewhere you went to. Content all around us. Ugh, that makes me yeah. really sad having yeah. said that out loud. Back in the nineties, internet was someplace you weren't always connected to it. You had to sit down at a desktop in a room somewhere and access it. And then you logged out, you were off. You had to be intentional about being yeah. on the internet. Yeah. And then now it's just sort of it's passive. You're online all the time. 
something happens online, you can find out about it without even having to kind of just seek it out. I was just thinking about this earlier today because my partner and I use this app called Signal. It's a private messaging app. And the internet where he was went out today because of that big storm. And of course, my immediate panic brain is like, everything I depend on depends on the internet. And it's a good lesson too about the idea of content creation as a liberating narrative. If the platform hosting your content goes down, that's it. It's, you have no recourse. If you look back at the history of the idea of content as this thing that Bill Gates of all people helped popularize, content has often been intertwined with the notion of monopolies. So Microsoft at that time, obviously a monopoly, a desktop PC software. So many parts like the content ecosystem today, Google itself, which people say search engine optimization, really they mean optimizing for Google. Yeah. It will it impact Somebody creating content, hoping it'll get service on Google. Somebody recording a song and Spotify hoping it'll get clicks. It seemed like very divergent things, but I think what does link the two is that the workflow there and the expectations around it are still the same. In both those cases, you're fighting with these things you don't quite understand. You're producing for a machine and you're trying to make the machine happy and people say content it does imply not only there's a container out there the container is owned by somebody else that is probably a monopoly and however they're operating is not completely transparent to you the whole seo industry is built on reverse engineering what's in google how google's algorithm works because google's algorithm is not public knowledge and it feels like whenever you get a little bit of a handle on it google goes and changes things up and to go back to the concept of Content is filler. It's also disposable. So yeah. people changes in something that ranked highly for years, all of a sudden be totally gone. You'd have to have the link saved somewhere to find it with a search. And then Netflix or Spotify, they can remove something from the platform with no notice. Something that you listening to for years or watching, you log in one day, all of a sudden it's gone. The same goes for a lot of content they'll work going on a company's site. It might get posted. It might not get posted. And then, or it could be removed as some site redesign later on so yeah i was actually i was just looking at my digital portfolio of my old articles from when we worked at the content mill and they're 404 now so yeah. how do i prove that i wrote this piece in the first place because our names are not on them we don't actually own the content you can have the blog pulled out from under you at any point or if we're keeping the containers but if we're, the container could just be dumped where are you yeah. at that point? Someone else has the container and you don't have any control. Keep coming back to this idea. And you can tell me if this idea is crazy. But of the content as container or as a yeah. filler that fills container of mm -hmm. stuff. It's for me in my head, I'm imagining it as a Russian nesting doll situation because <laughs> the writers or content producers, right? video producers, mm -hmm. social media people, whatever. The person creates the content. And then before working on a content, it's owned by the client that it was produced for, but it's also owned a little bit by company that the writer works for. So it's owned by that client, but then they're going to put it on a service like Google, like wherever their website is hosted, they're going to put it on a platform on the internet. So that's another layer of containers. Yeah. So it's like yeah. containers inside containers inside containers. And I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just a pretty <laughs> cool metaphor tumbling around in my head right now. 
And to me, it just all feels very artificial. It's also like a Ruth Goldberg machine in a way. Because yeah. There's so, there's all these like different complex parts working together with each other. And then if one of them breaks the whole thing, it just doesn't work at all. So what's the point? <laughs> That's the question. And the person who, or the company that owns Container is somehow making money off this yes. in a way at the expense of the person who's creating it for it because the labor of creating it is very difficult. But the, the labor, like, like even Bill Gates said in his essay, distribution of it is actually very easy. It's actually the, the creation of it. It's very, uh, it's very difficult. So I think delighting it as something like writing or painting or anything is somehow all content creation is in a way is meant to, no, it's obscures the work that goes into it, the specific work. Cause you think, oh, what am I doing today? I'm creating content. That's, I don't know, it's nebulous. Whereas if you think, oh, I have to do a lot of writing today. That can seem a little more daunting perhaps, but then the idea of labeling a content creation, just, I don't know, it makes it seem. Well, in the. But it does make it seem more utilitarian for sure. And the idea of, like someone who's providing content is in a way like a utility, because if you think about, uh, totally. yeah, like some of the early usages of the word content, a lot of it has to do with either the TV world or things like dial up internet. So you think about like AOL and Time Warner and those people they had about the merger is like they're talking about content. The concern there was that AOL was a content distributor and Time Warner was like a content provider or creator. Time Warner owned all these brands like Time Magazine or I think HBO was part of that. Exactly. And then AOL was a distributor. So you have this situation where the person who is creating the content is also distributing it. So it's what's to stop them from just simply discriminating against any other content except their own. The recent talks about net neutrality, and I say recent, I guess that was a couple of years ago now. Time, what is it? But yeah, like you're saying, what is really stopping them from prioritizing their content over over everyone else? And the real answer is nothing. But yeah. the fake answer is government policy. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that this has... The fact that this reaches such a level as to necessitate the creation of government policy to kind of assess things, like, yeah. that's bonkers. Yeah. Uh, to tie this back into the content mill angle, and content mills sell themselves to small businesses or the buyers of the content mill services. They've figured out a way to create and distribute content because you're getting, like, the writers who are creating it. Then the content mill is helping to put it through social media or telling the client how to post it, when to post it, even something like that can be important in terms of there's like a whole, I mean, there is a cold cottage industry here about you know, what is the best time. That is my favorite mill. question of all time. <laughs> so the content mills in a way have unified those functions. They try to be both the creator and the distributor at the same time and they're at the mercy of the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. There was this really good article on the website Popula a few years ago that was about somebody. He described himself as a toiler on a content farm. And we both know exactly what content farm he's talking about. Yep. He has a pretty good breakdown of how all this labor goes into it, how he can't really keep up. He also talks about the part how SEO is so important to this like the search engine optimization. He talks about how basic what he's doing is he's rewriting a press release and then trying to publish them as rapidly as possible. Yeah. So it might be useful because yeah. he, he actually goes into what it looks like. If I remember here, the, what the day-to-day 
like what it looks like. Yeah, he does. He has some interesting content metaphors in here. Like he says, there was too much content to harvest for anyone to get away with. And then he has, uh, or he has something else here. I, actually, here he does talk about other functions or the content. And he says, quote, you could hire my company to produce stories every day to go on Google News about developments in fiber optics and our technology, the silicon industry. Or, for instance, 200 yeah. words about data center. <laughs> yeah. For and he says, he says the purpose is to generating a steady flow of content meant to draw traffic to your site. And then he describes it as a bait and switch uh, operation because somebody's looking for news about something and you know, they're going to this company site, they're getting what is essentially a rewritten press release that they could have found in any other way. But then he goes on to say like what I was saying earlier about like how in a way the quality doesn't matter. He says really the content of the news itself didn't really matter. Just that it, whatever it was, wrote it in a way that strongly implied anyone reading it needed to purchase the company's product. And then he talks about how he wasn't producing nearly enough content. And uh, what you were saying earlier about how you thought this is the best time in history to be a writer. At the beginning of the story, he does talk about how he was so psyched about this job, but getting prepared for it, but buying like some style guides and so on. Yeah. And you have the title writer. Like, yeah. I went to grad school for ages to become a writer, get hired writer. And you're like, yes. (laughs) And you get prepared for it. You can get creative and you can carve a fulfilling article out of what you're posting. But most of the time, it's just how do I shoehorn these obnoxious keywords that someone, maybe the company, maybe the content specialist that is assigned to the account, like somebody came up with some garbage keywords and they're all phrases that don't make sense. You have to put that in your piece. Not only that, you have to do it in 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, that's a perfect description of it. And just to go back to the technology, the linkage between technology and content, maybe we don't have to discuss all that this time. But one thing is that how are these keywords being generated? Well, there's like a whole cottage industry of companies that make software just for doing keyword research. And then how do you know that these keywords work? Well, a lot of that comes from search engine optimization, which itself, like we said earlier, it's reverse engineering how Google works. Like what does Google look for? Does Google care about how long somebody stays on the page? Do they care about how, how many times the keyword is used in the first paragraph? They care if it's used in the first sentence. So there is this whole little industry around this. And a lot of it is to the person doing the writing. Some of it is quite opaque. You are downplaying that. I think most of it's opaque. I think you you could, in theory, understand it with setting aside some time. But the thing is, the whole point of just having to create all of this very quickly and in such a volume is that you don't really have time to do that unless you do it on your own time. Trying to, trying to understand that. I keep coming to this, the, back to this idea of the content mill creates this. I don't know if it's the content mill or the industry and the content mill is just tacking onto it, but there is a false sense of urgency in all of this work. Yeah. I remember it, it, like back in the day we used to, I, I never experienced this, but I heard, I heard the stories of how writers used to sleep under their desks oh, the day before deadline because, <laughs> and maybe you were one of them, but. Yeah, that, I think that predate, that might've predated even me because apparently if you go back far enough, it gets even really bad. Yeah. Even worse than that. But I guess one thing we could at least maybe wrap this one up on is that ironically, in a way, somebody who had worked for that content meal for your time 
you know, had said something to the effect of there's no such thing as a content emergency. Yes. And it, it was no surprise really that he didn't last because that's your sentiment. I don't know how long you could really live with yourself like being in the industry because you're exactly right. The false sense of urgency is always there. You almost disregard any concern quality at some point. And a lot of times you get away with that, but then sometimes it's like somebody parks in on it and that's, and then it, it seems like an emergency to get it fixed, updated. And a lot of times it might not even be something that's related to the keywords or, or related to anything that would affect the articles. We're really ranking at all, but it's like that they would even ever post. That's the other thing too. It might not ever even get posted. So a lot of times you have these incredibly urgent feeling situations that have the stakes are incredibly low because I'm talking about might never get posted or even if it does get posted, nobody would see it because even with all the SEO sort of tricks going on, some of these pieces come out of the content mill world. I mean, they're just, most people were never going to see them. It's going to be like buried on the archives, like blog page. And it's like the business model of the content mill, or it used to be, right? Is this scattershot. I remember learning, first learning that our company was still doing cold calls. Cold calling is really like the analog equivalent of content. Oh my creation. goodness. Yeah. yeah. And they were, they're calling people yeah. and selling as much content as they could. And as the writers, we were on the book for producing that content, no matter whether the company was considered on. When I realized that, it felt like a punch in the gut. Like I was writing essentially or reproducing a press release into a vacuum. And there was yeah. no guarantee that was ever going to not the case. So, Oops, I didn't mean to make it so bleak. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like what Jeff Jarvis said. It's like, there's too much content. There's too much of it. Uh, and then it's not just recreationally, like with what do I listen to? What do I watch? There's all this anxiety about what being the right thing. And so I have to, I can never not be producing content. And then that, that holds for somebody who is a self-professed content creator, trying to break through and go viral in their spare time. They had to just dedicating every second to thinking about how can I make the one breakthrough video? And then, but then like in the workspace, like if you're working for a content mill, they're like trying to produce content constantly. But then there is a sense of it's contradictory. Yes. This enormous sense of urgency. And like uh, someone who I worked with early on said something like sword of Damocles was dangling above him. You know, the sword that's suspended about a single right. wire or hair or something. And it could be cut at any time. But and then at the same time, it's all of these sort of buttons are not hooked up to anything. <laughs> There's all this urgent leverage to go everything published. But then it's going into maybe somebody's inbox to look at. And then to think about publishing. Maybe. And if and may, may, maybe. Like maybe they'll maybe. look at it. Who knows? There's a content farm and not really a writing farm. I think there's something in that term. It's you're prioritizing technological side of it and the fact that it's going, that it is filtered through Google, that it's it's been massaged by all these different pieces of software for coming up with keywords, for doing research on keywords for optimizing site, the site itself for SEO, the writerly part of it, like the, any sort of styling or voice takes a backseat when you call it content. And instead what you're prioritizing with that term is really the idea of something that is just produced, that fast produced and produced in that paradigm that in the Bill Gates essay, something that is very cheap to reproduce. You can just take this press release, re rewrite it a little bit, but that's a blog or, or you can take these keywords and just put them 
willy-nilly throughout the piece and use some stock phrases that you're familiar with, maybe a couple of quotes and a discrete set of inputs. So like, it's, I think the idea of calling it content to link it to technology even more is that you can, like in, in yeah, software, put in a certain computer code, it has a predictable output. It's the idea of calling some content set of writings. I just put these keywords here in this order and get, get this structure, certain structure that we know works well for SEO. I'll get these results. It doesn't quite in the real world doesn't really play out because of course you're competing against there's the competition is so fierce and Google algorithms can change at any moment. And but as the content creator is, you're supposed to be the one who's able to break through all that. But at the same time, to go back to the other meaning of content is something that just happens to you. There's already so much content out there that the odds of breaking through are really, are really small. Yeah. Agreed. I think. It's, it, it'll be useful maybe as, let's, as our podcast, our content, our audio content <laughs> continues to delve into the differences between content that is created for like personal purposes versus like with the intent to go viral versus by companies. I could tell you a lot of stories about how my WordPress account has been open since 2013 and I have made one entire dollar. Right. Yeah. I've made $111 ever from WordPress and that's in more than 10 years. Yeah. And uh, it was all paid out within the first year. I had for a long time, 80 something dollars on hold from them because they won't pay out. She reached $100. Yeah. $100. Yeah. In the early years, you could rack up double digit dollars per month without even that many views. Mm -hmm. My blog was never a blockbuster of any kind, but then it got at some point, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Now it's suddenly, and you get 5,000 views before that might've paid out. $11 now it pays out 11 cents. We love to see it. <laughs> we love to see it, folks. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end it.